Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 35th episode, I'll be talking to Alex Watts, musician, reformed content creator, strategist, and co-host of the Genrealization podcast about farms, floods, and the future. Along the way, we'll discuss cats with vegetable affinities, office bathroom reading etiquette, and finding a kernel of hope in the bottom of a black hole. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note. Because Alex is a local and a very nice person, he invited me into his home to record this face-to-face with him. As the mics were so close, there is going to be a little bit of bleed over between tracks, and I've edited it just a little bit looser this time to account for all the back and forth. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Well, my name's Alex Watts. I am a reformed content creator. I used to be in a lot of bands and now I'm just in one. We're called Carl. We make shoegaze and we love it, though we don't play as often as we should. I also host a podcast called Generalization, which is about books with Alex Soderlund. So it's me and Alex and Alex, Alex and Alex. That's fun. That's great. Lots of jokes in the future for us. What makes me a beautiful and unique snowflake? I know this is something I I challenge myself on constantly. I don't think necessarily anything except for potentially my immense capacity for self-love and also the love of others, which I think is something that not necessarily everyone has. And me being very self-important, say that I do have, I'm great, aren't I fantastic? And I think probably more than that, a willingness to consume absolutely any content, assuming that you can get it in front of me at any given time. I also work in advertising, which is a thing. It's <laughs> it's fine. I am the head of social for Marcel Sydney, which is an advertising agency. And we do some pretty cool stuff that I'm occasionally pretty proud of cool cool now we've known each other for a little while i actually thought you would move but i realized as i went back into your lovely house that i have in fact been here before for the housewarming you have and i got to meet your internet famous cat yeah philip Philip. (laughs) he's a cutie he's a real cutie he's enormous and has a personality i wouldn't have ever expected myself to be a cat person i've always loved cats but never like being like a cat guy uh, I need to point out, Alex, you are wearing a shirt that says, ask me about my cat. Yeah, I know. Uh, and it was not deliberate, uh, <laughs> but here we are. I was just cleaning and this is a good cleaning shirt. Yeah. So Philip showed up at our neighbor's house, must be three years ago mm-hmm. now. And he was loud and he was hungry and he stayed there for four or five weeks. We tried to help our neighbors find a new house room and we couldn't find anyone. So we took him in. And now, three years later, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Philip is a beautiful animal. He's also a total rat. <laughs> and, like, will... It's it's amazing because, like, you don't think... I don't necessarily think that all animals are sentient or capable of great human thought. But Philip will... When, when I've got, like, when I've eaten something and I've got indigestion, Philip will come and massage my belly, Aww. which is beautiful. But at the same time, when I'm, I've got an earlier interview or, like, something important the next day... Philip 
will come and wake me up at three in the morning. So <laughs> Philip has, he contains multitudes, which I think is a beautiful thing for a cat to contain. So it's something when you, when you realize, when you've had a few pets in your life, that you realize that the variations between them, like it took me having two cats at the same time, which has been a very long time since I've done that, mm. to realize that uh, my second cat, Bolin, is an idiot. Mm. Like, uh, Kimiko has nicknamed him Bad Choice Bolin because in any situation where he could make a choice, yeah. he will make the wrong choice. Now this is the cat that's run away a couple of times. He's run away a couple of times. Yep. He's got one eye, although yeah. that's not because he ran away. That's just a quirk of medicine. Right. But yeah, he has investigated open windows twice and ended up under the house with me dragging him out. In one case, using a possum cage to trap him overnight. It's one of those things where it's like he will run down a hall and see you there, and will have the choice of either coming, going back the way he came. Or making the dart between your legs as you're walking. Yeah. You will always go for the dart and yeah. smack into your ankle. Yeah. And you will yell, why are you like this? Yeah. And that that thing about cat... Philip does that too. And I think Philip is, is uh, an idiot savant sometimes. <laughs> that, but he'll... Like, we'll be walking down the hallway. And he like one of the my, one of the cutest things Philip does is, is like when we get up in the morning, he'll be waiting at the door and he'll wait there until like the first foot touches the ground. And then he's like suddenly vocal and they will run with you like if you if you start to like make the motions to run like you move your arms a little bit or you make like some noise with your feet philip will get super excited and start running with you but sometimes that results in him just running into you and then being like so traumatized that he's run into him philip is effectively a soccer player which i love Um, just throwing his hands up in the air yeah he's a good cat he's a good cat My favorite thing is is when cats will attempt to leave you. Like, say they've been sitting on you Mm. or near you, and they will attempt to leave you, and then halfway through will change their mind and attempt to Mm. grab onto you you to try and brace themselves or stop what they're doing, and then just end up, especially if you're you're wearing shorts or if you're wearing pajamas or something with no grip to it, that claw will go directly into your leg. Yep. And... You will yell, and they'll look at you like, "What? What, what, what did I do? I, I was yeah. just being me. Don't, don't judge don't me. Don't censor me." Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Cats, they're great. Dogs are also great. Don't have a dog at the moment, though. Yeah. Wish we could have a dog. I was gonna say, I've, I've got my second-hand dog at the moment. Oh. Uh, in that Kimiko had a dog before we met. Right. And so when we moved in together, I suddenly had a dog for the first time since yep. I was a kid, which is nice. great. And Junior's special. <laughs> yeah. He's uh, good. He's like obsessed with Kimiko because. She had him on her own. Yeah. And so he is her mum and he is fixated to the mm-hmm. point where he will go out the dog door at the back, do his business and come back in and then run through the dining room to where she was before. Like as if to say, hey, I'm back. And I'll actually see him run back into the room, look left, look right, realize she's not there and then sit down sadly to wait until she comes back. That's beautiful. And I'm like, meanwhile, he's run directly past me. Yeah. And completely ignored me. And meanwhile, she'll be in the bathroom and she'll come out and he'll get really excited. I'm like, you missed this entire interplay. Yeah. <laughs> this this codependent little and that's pantomime. And that's a really beautiful thing about, I think, I've had a, a pet in that situation where I've moved into a house and there's been an existing relationship. And no matter how much love you shower on that, that animal, there is always the mum or the dad, the pack leader yeah. or whatever. You as an outsider can observe that so much better than, than either of them ever could. And the weird things that pet owners do with pets, like the things that you accept from your cat, Philip steals chicken <laughs> off our plates and... <laughs> It's only happened a couple of times, but now I think both Mary and I are at a point where if he did it, we'd just be like, 
fair juice, dude. Well done. Like you, <laughs> you did that. Eat the chicken as long as it's not you know bad for him. <laughs> You've earned it. You've earned it. You've earned it, kid. Enjoy the chicken. He also loves tomatoes. This is my favorite thing about tomatoes. Philip. Tomatoes, like you know, any kind of tomato doesn't matter. Loves it. Roma tomatoes, big trust tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. He'll like, eat does he eat them or does he just play with eats them? them. <laughs> What? Once we had one kilo of vine (laughs) on the vine trust tomatoes. This is before we knew about Philip's thing. He knocked them off the bench onto the ground and ate every single one of them and shat whole tomatoes (laughs) basically for a week, which was not great for us. Um, Recently, we had a punnet, a sealed punnet of tomatoes, and he knocked it off the bench, opened it up, and ate all those cherry tomatoes, (laughs) which was great. Um, and that leads into another great story about Philip, which is that recently we ran out of dry food way earlier than we thought we usually would. Not because we'd been filling up the container that goes into to feed Philip, but because the bag just wasn't there anymore. And both Mary and I kind of assumed that the other one had thrown it out. Not the case. <laughs> Philip had stolen the bag, <laughs> hidden it outside, and had been eating from it just to like get an extra meal. And that is like... That is some next level shit, and I'm so impressed that he did it. Um, yeah, it's like at a certain point, you're like, you're not even mad. Yeah, I'm you're just, just yeah. not even mad. <laughs> Though, admittedly, now his food is locked up, so he doesn't get too fat because <laughs> we've been on a weight loss regime with Philip. As you said, Philip is a very big cat, um, but we want him to live a long time, and a fat cat doesn't necessarily do that, so <laughs> we've helped him. A friend was telling me once that you realize that like, he had a Pomeranian, and he's like, when you can offer this dog a treat, the dog will look at it. And you can see the the cognition of, Mm. I don't want a treat right now, but I don't want to discourage the the giving of treats. So they will like take the treat and put it down and like cover it with their paw or something. Yeah. And and it's it's the equivalent of, you know, when someone brings wine to a dinner and you've already picked what wine you're going to serve. Thank thank you. That's really nice of you. I'm going to put this in the fridge. Or and on the rack, yeah. and then he goes away. But yeah. it's like you don't want to say, "Oh, I don't enjoy your lovely gift, mm. but I don't want this right now." Yeah. <laughs> I'm not drinking this year as a personal challenge, and going pretty well so far. Feeling good, feeling great. One thing I have continued to do at house parties or when we have people over is put a few beers in the ice bucket so that people come, they put theirs in there, and they feel bad about taking theirs. And it's a little, it's probably a little bit self-serving, but I don't mind having a collection of beer, um, which means I have to buy less beer for the next party. Uh, but also, hey, if you if you're lucky, you can sell her some of that stuff, and it yeah, exactly. turns super potent. Exactly, exactly. Particularly, actually, with wine in particular, people I think interesting judge of position in life about whether or not you come back for a half full wine bottle. Mm. so I have and it's no judgment I have some friends who still do that who'll be like oh I left half a bottle of wine at your place last night I'll drop around to get it today <laughs> and if it's a $100 bottle of wine 100% but most of my friends aren't bringing $100 <laughs> bottle of wines to parties and they're bringing a $20 bottle of wine so now I've started if I can they'll come to pick up their half a bottle of wine but in the interim I will have tried to replace it with a full bottle of the same kind oh. uh, as like a Sort of like, oh, no, you didn't... Like, we didn't even open that. Just take this bottle of red or the bottle of wine. This kind of stealth niceness. I know. (laughs) Um, And if I can pull that off for a little bit... Because the other thing is that people are like, man, I swear I drank like half a bottle of this last night. Must have been something else. Um, Yeah. So it's it's both bad and good, I think, at the same time. No, it's been great because um, Kimiko's pregnant, so therefore he's not mm. drinking. And so we've we had a situation where we went to a very nice restaurant and realized that the bill was far less than we expected yeah. it to be because only one of us was drinking. And we had signed up to a wine club with an orange winery that we had been to when we were there for a wedding. 
Mm. And every once in a while, they'll send us something. And I'll be like, oh, we haven't actually opened anything. Because a wine bottle is a commitment as opposed to opening one beer or making myself a drink or something. Exactly. And so it's like, if I'm opening that bottle, that bottle has to be going. And that has to be me drinking that bottle. So I will more often than not not do it. It's really interesting because Mary is still drinking. And I haven't been like, oh, you shouldn't drink. But Mary just drinks less. Which means that collectively, we spend less money on wine or alcohol because of exactly what you just described. Because I'm not there to like contribute to the finishing of the bottle of wine. It'll either go off or she's got to drink a whole bottle and that's a hangover. And it's a, yeah, it's a whole thing. Also, Mary's a tiny person. So. Mary is not a huge person. No, you're right. She is significantly smaller than me. And the money thing is huge. Like yeah. This is the wildest thing. I bought the Nintendo Switch the day it came out mm-hmm. or like I pre-ordered it with money that I'd saved on not drinking in two months. And it was just like, I just suddenly I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten a pay rise. And that's weird. That's really weird. Yeah. This is booze. My friend Dale was saying that her father quit smoking and found suddenly that he had all this disposable income to the point where he'd be like, oh, you know, I bought a car. Yeah. And I paid the deposit with money I didn't do smoking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's it. It's just red hot cash. Um, <laughs> Man, it's a, it's wild. So I basically have no vices now. Don't drink coffee. Don't smoke. Don't drink. I don't, drink co- uh, I don't know. I, I don't think the coffee monkey will get off my back for a yeah, while. Yeah, I, I quit coffee before I quit drinking. A long time before I quit drinking. Used to have a cafe in our office, mm-hmm. like next to my desk. And I'd have eight coffees a day. Oh, Jesus. And I'd, you know, not sleep. Um, lost a lot of weight because yeah. I didn't need to eat, which was great. Uh, but it was very bad for my health. So I was like, I'm going to go a couple months without coffee to just acclimatize. And then I just stopped drinking coffee altogether. So there we go. Clean, pure. Yeah. What I've noticed, though, is that Kimiko had a couple of months where she's like, you know, for January and February, I'm just not drinking. And I was like, yep, yeah, cool. No problem. What she found is that once she went back to having a drink every now and again, mm. uh, her tolerance had dropped to bargain basement levels yeah to like half a gin and tonic and she's red in the face and a little bit giggly and she's yeah. like what's wrong with me and i'm like oh you've thrown off your balances yeah uh, so i did a couple of two months last year and then at christmas i was like one beer and done i'm ready <laughs> i'm like Woo-wee! and uh, it was suddenly just uh, amazing so good for my bank balance everyone should quit drinking for a little while yeah i was gonna say make yourself a lightweight lightweights have more fun lightweights have more fun she got that tattooed on my forearms I was gonna. I don't think you have any more. You've got a couple uh, more space. Yeah, I reckon I could do like lightweights have more fun. Yeah, I was gonna say you don't have any room on the knuckles, but the, I always thought. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no, I could do my front knuckles. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Some, some Jake and Elwood action. I mean, just lightweight. I could just get lightweight. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty funny. All right, Alex. So let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Northwest New South Wales, a little town called Weewar. Population two thousand and a busy day cotton country grow a lot of cotton use a lot of water a little bit of cattle a little bit of wheat i grew up on i want to say 150 acres which is not very much but enough to sort of have an appreciation of space and of the space that i'm going i'm in and i think really interestingly because we we did have crops in occasionally we did have cattle occasionally but most of the farm was left to go back to what it was or would have been and that sort of fundamental appreciation of what australia is is something that i've never gotten rid of so i grew up in rural australia and have this sort of deep-seated passionate loyalty to what that is and i think it in a really healthy way i think i've managed to turn that into an actual just super great love of australia as oh, I can go to Tasmania and just bloody love Tasmania because isn't it stunning? And go anywhere and bloody love it. And I think I should should probably clarify there is that because of the people my parents were, which were 
very open to sharing and very open to people being involved in life and stuff means that the cultural attitude of I bloody love Australia and wouldn't be a shame if anyone but me was here doesn't apply because I think Australia is a place to be shared and to be loved and respected and uh, that's the thing that I probably from there are a lot of people I grew up with who have the same love of Australia that I have but miss that inclusiveness again comes back to what we were talking about before that share it because it's fucking great and if we can't then it sucks See, I probably shouldn't make this assumption, but my first thought is you were growing up in Smallville and happened to get the Kents. Yeah, exactly. I am Superman. Thank you. Thank you for completely identifying who I actually am and revealing my uh, true identity <laughs> on this podcast. I'm Australian Exclusive. Superman. Heard it uh, here exclusive. First. You heard it here first. No, I actually really love Smallville because of just like the attitude of a small town and it's actually a small town and that's cool and good. So I grew up in Northwestern New South Wales and then I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to school in Sydney when I was 15. So I wanted to be, wanted to do music. The high school in Wee War didn't offer music. So we started looking. I got a scholarship to a school in North Sydney called Barker and suddenly my experience of privilege dramatically changed and that's a that was a really interesting thing because in we war my family are very well to do we have property my dad runs successful companies it's it's all good we're contributing everything's great my parents have got money i moved to sydney and i'm suddenly exposed to friends whose parents own 12 million dollar houses <laughs> and i was very confused about that and i think that's that's uh, i don't know i loved i loved my time at school in sydney and some of my friends like my some of the friends i met there are still my best friends but also the incredible wealth that you are exposed to is just it is mind-blowing to be in a 12 million dollar house i remember going to a friend's house once and they just finished building this new house and the entire back wall was glass windows three stories and it was just glass windows top like top to bottom and they all had they were all that glass that you can press a button and it's like it's fogged up fogged up it's like amazing this is incredible and we were drunk and 17 and the petulant brat son who lived there was like i hate these windows and picked up a brick and threw it through one of them <gasps> we and i'm like oh no oh no and because it's like each floor is not multiple panes of glass it's one big it's pane. one big pane of oh glass. my god and he shatters one and he's like this is amazing he does another and it does another he lied to his parents about that for a very long time Oh, and eventually admitted it. But yeah, that's. I was gonna say, are you blowing up his spot here? No, no, he's good. He's <laughs> he's he's been to rehab now, and he's oh, okay. good. Yeah, that's um, good. He's good. He's he's safe. But yeah, I think that's and so that's sort of like the growing up trajectory mm-hmm. for me. Okay, so once you were done in school, obviously, because you know I'm talking to you here in an inner city suburb of Sydney, mm-hmm. you decided to settle in Sydney, or was it sort of an attrition process where it's just I'm here and I've continued to be here, or was that a choice? So I yes, I ended up up. up back in Sydney. So after high school, I went to uni in Bathurst and because I I did reasonably well at high school, but because I was lazy and wanted to play a lot of computer games, probably (laughs) I decided to do a comms degree at Charleston because the internet was pretty good. The degree was pretty easy and I could do it fast and play a lot of computer games at the same time which was great <laughs> um, and so i spent two years at charleston in bathurst getting outrageously tanked on two dollar clean skins and loving life and playing a lot of world of warcraft and starcraft and just absolutely living the what i thought was the dream and studying a journalism degree now the thing about that beautiful easy degree was that didn't really set me up uh, to <laughs> 
take on the world in high finance or even as like a farmer or in rural Australia. Right out of uni, I applied for a lot of jobs that were in rural and regional places because I was like, this is what I want to be. Just the reality of it was there were, there were no jobs. So I got a job in Sydney working for Fairfax as a photographer, loved it, got made redundant after six months Ooh. and that sucked. And I was like, journalism, it's not for me. So I got a job in advertising. And something that I really struggle with is that I made this decision as I needed, because I needed money to get into advertising. And the pure reality is, despite some noticeable examples, is that career, because it's basically exclusively soft skills, requires you to live in a metro region. And it's something that both me and my partner, Mary, struggle with, is that Australia is so heavily centralized. Most places are so heavily centralized. But Australia in particular, I think that... If we decided to leave, I would have to learn how to do something else, which, you know, I probably could. Or I would have to get one of very few and very rare jobs that exist in the industries that I have talent and skill. So I think that's why I've ended up in Sydney. And it's actually, uh, I think it's a hard thing. I think it's the thing a lot of people struggle with. I don't know if you're aware, but recently there's been a lot of push by Barnaby Joyce, who's Deputy Prime Minister of our fine country, to move core services to the country. So they're moving the APVMA, which is the Australian Pesticides something, 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 something. But it's like the organization who are responsible for making sure that the pesticides we use don't kill people. Great. They moved that to Armadale instead of Canberra, which is great news because now there's jobs in Armadale, which is a rural center, instead of Canberra, which is a rural center. <laughs> uh, hey, owned Canberra, gotcha. Um, but no, so there's this sudden thing that like, you know, they're doing that. I actually think that is really good because the APVMA moves there and they need all the support stuff. So there's that. And they're doing a lot of that decentralization work, which I think is important. Now, it hasn't been handled exceptionally well, but I think that attitude is actually really good because Sydney is cooked. Like we've been at our house for a long time and we're lucky that the cost of living, he hasn't really gone up in the five years that we've been here. But if you look at, like I look at rental places in the same area from the same space and Jesus Christ. Yeah. The price is un- unbelievable because of course no one wants to get a $1.5 million loan when they're 27 mm-hmm. because that's that's the end of your life. Yeah. Like because you are then completely locked in. We You don't do that. And I think that that's... So basically, I want to buy a house in Armadale for $300 and work in advertising. Not necessarily going to happen immediately. <laughs> Maybe it's something that can happen in the future. We'll see how it goes. See how it goes. Yeah, I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> Actually, I kind of would. I don't drive, so I'd be stuck. Okay, so that, you know, we need some infrastructure. Look, I'm not going to get into the, like, the fun, the, like, the really deep, hey, let's build some good infrastructure in rural Australia so that we can all go live there. But wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to just... Uh, Live on a farm, work for the APVMA. Um, <laughs> the, the only example I have. Yeah, no. Growing up where you did, what sort of kid were you? I was a nerd. I was a big nerd. I was tall. Like, sorry, I was a big nerd in the sense that I loved a lot of nerdy stuff, but I was also a big nerd. I went to band camp. I played clarinet and saxophone and I was a dweeb. I studied Latin in high school. I did all of the reading and gaming and nerding that I could do. And for a point that was difficult in like very early primary... Oh, actually, you know what? Interestingly, I couldn't read until year two. So I was like a a late bloomer in that sense. My handwriting is still terrible, but I had a couple of really, really good teachers. And my mum is a teacher as well, but I had a couple of really good teachers who sort of drew me out of that and gave me the ability to read. And as soon as I could read, I read everything. I read a lot of the rings when I was nine, which is just too young. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, nine or ten. Yeah, too young. But as soon as I knew how to read, I was like, I'm fucking doing it. I'm reading everything. <laughs> I can read every book. Fuck you. Took me like nine months to read Lord of the Rings, but I did it. And so I was, I was a dweeb. I was awkward and shy and no, I was awkward and not shy, which is a horrible combination <laughs> because I was super keen for everyone to hear about my stories, but the stories weren't good and I couldn't <laughs> execute and I'd get halfway through them and go, oh no. <laughs> what if oh I've got to finish this this is this is bad so that's the kind of kid I was and at band camp I was a little bit of the cool guy because I was like <laughs> a little bit like I wasn't a total total nerd but I was like a little bit cool and I like rock music <laughs> and so that was cool and and great and yeah so that's sort of like up until year nine I was just like I would never say an outsider because one of the things I did love about We War was that I like for all that I was like a nerd and awkward and kind of a little bit different maybe to people. No one was ever like, you're weird and different and I don't want to hang out with you. They were like, you're weird and different and can we play StarCraft? <laughs> and I think that was that was good and great. And so I was like, I was very lucky in that sense. Changed when I went to school in Sydney because suddenly there were the 360 people in my year, which is quite large. And there were 20 people in my year in we were. So there were more people at my high school than lived in my town. Wow. And there are people who were in my year who I never met, like in three years of high school that I just never met. So it's really funny to think about that. But so I came to Sydney and suddenly I wasn't a big, awkward nerd fish in a small pond. I was still a big, awkward <laughs> nerd fish, but there were maybe 30 other big, awkward nerd fishes and 30 really tough guys and you know, as a 16 year old boy, 185 incredibly attractive women, um, because every human being is attractive to you when you're a 16 year old horny guy. But that perspective made me open my worldview up heaps. Cause I was like suddenly exposed to not just Starcraft, there was Warcraft as well. And, uh, <laughs> and command and conquer and oh boy. Um, but no, I just think that like that complete shift was like really good for me. I was Still a nerd, but there were other nerds with me. But because I'd been tempered in the fires of not having other nerds to talk to, I never just stayed talking to nerds. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's like if I had to boil down the course, like the, to the core math of me. Ah, I see what you did there. Gotcha. I would probably say that it's like some like element of that. Like I was never able to be just one thing. So I have never been just one thing. I think that's really good and great. I really like that. I think that's such a, a nice thing to have as, as the core of you, like you said. And you actually reminded me the idea of, you know, being a compulsive reader. Mm. It's something that occurred to me the other day. I think someone mentioned it on Twitter and it all came flooding back to me is now that with the advent of mobile phones with big enough screens that you can read on them, no one will ever have to sit in the bathroom and read the back of a shampoo bottle again. I know. Oh, the other day. <laughs> so I have, I'm going to pick it up so I can show it to you. So for the listeners, I'm holding an Amazon Paperwhite. I only recently got this because I've been reading Kindle on my phone. I was like, I want something slightly larger. I want something with more battery. I take it to work every day. Take it to the toilet when I go to talk. So I want to, I want to read in the toilet. Yeah. So take it in. No judgment. And you know what? Maybe I'll spend 10 minutes reading on the toilet because it's, I want to take a little break. I don't smoke. I don't don't drink coffee. I don't have any of the other excuses to leave my desk that other people do. So take the book and I read and people are like, you spend so much time on the toilet. And I'm like, yeah, I was, I was reading. And... People I've discovered don't read on the toilet. There's a whole group. I did a tweet poll about it. There's a whole, like 20% of people, according to the very scientific poll that I did on Twitter, yeah. 
think that that is disgusting. 80% of people are entirely on board. But there's a group of people who think that's weird. So there's 20% of people who are wrong. Yeah, there's 20% of people who are wrong. And I'm very reticent to ever say that someone is wrong, uh, except for racists, uh, sexists, homophobes, and most of the ists. But if you think that I can't read on the toilet, you're wrong. You, not only are you wrong, but you are fundamentally flawed and you needed to take a step back, look at yourself in the mirror and understand the mistake that you've made. But yeah, read on the toilet, everyone. It's great. Yeah, I've worked in offices where the bathroom is in the center of the floor, which is the same place where the you know the elevator is and the same place where the stairwells are for the fire stairs and yeah. stuff, which means that the bathrooms are surrounded by concrete, which means there is no reception in the bathrooms. Uh... And the first time I walked in and looked at my phone and realized you have zero bars in the bathroom but five the minute you step outside I went that's really clever of them to have done that and yeah. I went no you idiot they probably did that long before this was ever a question yeah <laughs> but still maybe there's a jammer in there you never know yeah. I was actually I read an article a little while ago about there are businesses who are putting jammers in toilets to prevent the amount of time people spend in the bathroom <laughs> and you know what just give us our break capitalism <laughs> come on take a step back let me read my book the one thing I will say that I have started doing and I feel bad about is occasionally I'll be scrolling through Facebook when I'm on the toilet and see a video that I want to watch mm -hmm. and I'll click it and I'll listen to it. I'll be like, Oh, oh no, you're I that. No, no, no. It's so Alex. bad. It's only in the past like two weeks. I'm trying real hard not to do it, but it's only when there's no one in there. Yeah. But then someone comes in and you're midway through like dumb Facebook video about cats with like happy cat music. And you're like, Oh, I love cat music. Oh my God. It's so bad. I shouldn't have ever told anyone that, but here we go. Here we are. <laughs> We're getting deep. Yeah, I have seen been in situations where someone will you'll be in the bathroom and someone will answer a phone call and have the phone call. Yeah, I'm like, no, no, call them back. What yeah. are you doing? Yeah, but okay, just let's 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 run with this for a little while. Is that substantially worse than just being on your phone on the on the toilet? It is because other people can hear it. I think uh, it's, it, it's, it's, thing it's of disturbing someone else's moment okay yeah. that makes it, sense. It, it's that thing of also are you telling the person that you're talking to that you are doing up your pants as you're talking to them yeah at least one hopes you are yeah <laughs> i guess the okay another question though if you aren't telling them and they never know is anyone really hurt uh, as somebody who has had like a phone conversation with my dad in yeah. Canada and then just before I'm about to say oh well I should probably let you go I hear the flush yeah and I get so viscerally angry yeah just like okay. you you oh and you don't have a cordless phone dad what are you doing oh oh no <laughs> he, he like... would have stretched it around the corner that's that's kind of nice though. <laughs> that's a beautiful image i'm entirely i'm entirely into it i, I live it i live it <laughs> jesus yeah anyway uh listeners let us know if you shit and phone that would be great <laughs> so pivoting back to our original conversation yeah sorry this shit chat it happens um all right well initially when i asked you about an umbrella topic that we could kind of use as the the core of this episode you sent me a rather cryptic message where yes, you said farms floods and the future and then you asked me if that made sense and i said no and so you said okay simpler starship troopers ill-made mutes and droughts slash flooding rain yeah so i'm gonna ask you First off, to explain what you meant, okay. and then we can get into the actual meaning. So the words that I use, farms, floods, in the future. And no, I, okay, so I'll explain it. I grew up on a farm. I have a deep, deep-seated love for rural Australia, and I think it's important. Love the farm bowl, mate. Floods, I think one of the things I didn't really talk about is that we were is very prone to flooding. And one of the things that would often happen when I was a kid that I wouldn't be able to go to school for upwards of two months because we were like flooded in, or I was sick because of swimming in flood water. 
Oops. Um, and what that meant was that I was able to read. Like, I was able to spend a lot of time reading and watching TV and watching movies. We only had, I think, like four movies on tape, which were Major Pain. Good. The second Star Wars film and Starship Troopers. Yeah. And the last one was Moulin Rouge. So those were the four films that I had from like 11 till 14, which is really formative, that I always had. I've seen Starship Troopers at least 50 times, maybe 100 even over the course of those years. Major Pain, even more. That film is not good. I I recently rewatched it and I was like, this is shit. But as a kid, I was like, this is great. Thing is, uh, that Major Pain, especially so much of that movie, has sunk into my brain to the point where I was sitting there, like just like s- some bit of dialogue was spinning around in my head, and it finally occurred to me, I'm like, it's from Major Pain. Yeah, <laughs> that film is. Oh, it it hooks. It's got a good hook. Bam Bam Bigelow is in that movie. I know. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it's the. Uh, I, I'm gonna take my was it my left foot and foot put, and put it on the right side of your face. face. Yeah, I know. It's so great. Um. It, I think my favorite line from that film is was like a love interest who's like the softer character. Yeah, who's and played by Hil- Hillary from Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That's right, and yeah. she's like, "You've got to give them positive reinforcement." And he's like, "Is that when I like shove a knife up their ass?" Basically, <laughs> not. It's like it's more eloquent than that, but yeah. basically, it's like when I, I I'm gonna like I'm gonna positively reinforce you by yeah. putting a knife up your butt, and I'm just like, "Fuck, that's a thing." Moulin Rouge, I still love, and has aged. Okay, it's fine. Starship Troopers. Now that's that's an interesting one because that film's good. Yeah, I think that film is objectively good, and a lot of people haven't seen it, and I would like them to because I think it's a rare example of a book that is not only better than the movie but is less fascist than. It's an, it's an entirely different animal. I yeah. swear. Like, because I I did the thing where I saw the movie in the theater. I saw it without irony because I was sixteen. Yeah. And yep. so you haven't developed that sense very finely yet. I didn't realize that a ton of it was a joke. Yeah. Uh, and then picked up the book with the movie cover. Yeah. And it was Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Yeah. And I was not prepared for that. No. You were not prepared for, like, actual fascism. And and just, like, s- sit-down discussion of fascism. And yeah. why it would work in this scenario according to the fascists. Yeah. And, ah, oh, as a kid, watching that and watching Rico's Roughnecks, like, fuck. That's some good shit. That movie is... <laughs> Get rid of every other movie on the fucking high school syllabus and put that one on it because that one's good. Yeah, so that's that's the sort of stuff that I would... That's why Floods is important because I would sit down and consume and just consume, cons- cons- consume, and consume. The future is the other part, which is that I had these three really influential people. First off, both of my parents are really influential to what I've read. That's just like a straight up fact um, because we have a, a room that's just full of books and then it ranges from Mills and Boone stuff that my mum would occasionally read to the like the deep thrillers that my mum would read as well to the Clive Custler that my dad loved <laughs> and also the deep thrillers that my dad loved and the fantasy and sci-fi that they both read. But the three other people who I would say are probably most important uh, number one, a f- very good family friend, Lissa Swansborough, who is a cotton farmer and has basically a house where every wall is wall-to-wall bookcases filled with DVDs and books and movies, and every single one of them is fantasy or sci-fi. That sound you just heard was a whole bunch of listeners just taking like a... <gasps> 
little yeah. inter- intake of breath. I know, and that's like, it's the dream. And yeah. the house is amazing. And I would go over there and not only did she teach me to love that kind of book, but she taught me to respect the book itself, like the physical product of a book because she would be like, return it and return it as it is now. And I'm, sometimes I'm a little bit like, ah, oh, give the book some love. But still, it's like I, when I lend a book to someone, I'm like, I want it to be like that when I get it back because I want to give this to another person, to another person, to another person. I've lent books to friends in the past and they come back destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they're like, oh, I read them in the rain. I, I couldn't put it down. And I'm like, but now I can't give it to anyone else. Look what you've done. Uh, look what you've done. <laughs> um, and so Lissa taught me this great love of the art of books and of returning and understanding that exchange, but also of space. I borrowed the Alien Quadrilogy from her <laughs> on DVD, uh, I think probably in 2000 and. 2003 and had it for six months and watched them all every weekend and just like loved them and then I was like give me more stuff like this and she'd give me more stuff like that her father was one of the scientists at Parkes radio telescope no way yeah and so she from him learnt a great technical love of space which she still has her family story is actually really fascinating her brother is one of the engineers who built lucas heights the nuclear power or not nuclear research center in australia Mm -hmm. (laughs) sydney and just like yeah uh, uh, definitely a really interesting australian story that's the way that family's been he this is going deep but he also was once i think mountain climbing near everest just because that's like the kind of of thing that he does as you do and he fell, his rope broke and he fell and he broke his top, like the top of his legs in like four places. His knees shattered. His legs were pushed up into his hips. His, like his, his bottom legs broke. His feet were crushed. And they were like, you're never walking again. Mm. And four years later, he was climbing that mountain again. Walking oh again. He's like, a, he's like a, a fucking hero. He's yeah. just like wild. Anyway, so she told me this great love. She gave me all these books and she exposed me to what the future was and it's just like what could it be like it could be alien it could be dark and dank or it could be Asimov or it could be whatever and she wasn't just rooted in the classics every month she got a shipment and the interesting thing is that rural Australia isn't uh, and this is rural Australia in the 90s and early noughties isn't a wealth of internet we don't have book depository it's hard to get there's no bookstore and the bookstore that is a hundred kilometers away doesn't have any sci-fi and fantasy in it yeah, or they might have one shelf they might have one shelf yeah. and it's not particularly up to date yeah so going to her and being able to see all these books and to not only see those books, but have her actively seeking them out and the seeking out of new rather than just resting on the old is something that she taught me to love a lot. And so that's what I meant by farms, floods and the future, which is that from a very early age, because of isolation and I guess a particular set of circumstances I was able to grow. The other thing I would say is that the the one thing that I forgot to mention was the two other people who are super influential on what I read. And that's my brother and my sister, both significantly older than me, both nerds, even though they don't necessarily like to admit it. My brother now basically, I think exclusively reads alternate history. Like, <laughs> so like not just the Nazis won the war, but like the civil war in America happened, but they had laser guns. Oh, is that, is it Johnny Ringo? Or was it? Yeah. It's like one, of, one of those ones where it's it's like, I, I remember shelving them at borders. There were tons of them. Yeah. Where it's like, here, here's the Civil War thing, but everyone's got a ray gun and you're fighting ants. Yeah, or exactly. Something. And it's, and like, it's just yeah. like, ah, oh, and my brother loves that shit. Um, and he also loves a lot of not that. It's interesting because my brother is like, oh, I'd like sometimes like, oh, I don't get Facebook. I don't get all this stuff. But my brother's been active in like nerd forums for 20 years. 
And like basically between like 2005 and 2012, name like a famous fantasy or sci-fi author who made it in that time. And Nick like knows them <laughs> because they were all act super active in these very particular forums, like Patrick Rothfuss and Joe Abercrombie and a bunch of people like that, that Nick just was like, oh yeah, I know those guys, which is really great because hopefully we can get them on generalization in the future. I was going to say, yeah, your brother can ask Patrick Rothfuss to write that third book. I know. Fucking <sighs> hell, Pat. Come on. Ugh. Commit. Yeah, so, yeah, that's what I meant by those three combinations of words. But I understand that they are also pretty cryptic, so there we go. (laughs) No, that's cool. Now, um, it's funny, it's really apropos, considering I just listened to the generalization episode where you talked about various kind of how various visions of the future in science fiction, a lot of them will be dark because Mm. they will be taking the problems of the now and expanding them to their logical end. And then writing the story in there. I mean, you look at something like Blade Runner or you look at something like, like like you mentioned, like Starship Troopers. But what were some of your favorite representations of futurism that maybe were a bit more positive? Because you're a very positive guy, Alex. And yeah. I, I think it's like, or rather, you can even flip that and say that are some of your favorite interpretations not positive? And- I think that the best sci-fi, despite being functionally based on a negative thing, is positive. Because you, you can't project the future without hope. Because there has to have been something that allowed us to make it to them. Because functionally, if sci-fi is just like, ugh, everything's bad, then we never fix any problems. We never solve any problems. And it doesn't make any sense, logically, that we have solved problems till now. A a modern example that I really love is The Expanse, both the book series and the TV series. And I think, you know what? I would love someone, not me, but someone to write an extended thesis on the opening credits of The Expanse because in the second season, they show the flooding of Earth, like the like destruction of Earth from climate change. And it's just really good storytelling, lets you know the Statue of Liberty is nearly underwater, but then we save it a little bit. It's great. I just think that's... But The Expanse is still fundamentally hopeful. Like, it's like all this shit's gone wrong, but we've always been working to fix it. So that's a modern example. More classic examples. And I have been trying to like rack my mind for what I read and watched and listened to when I was younger. Do you know Terry Brooks? Have you heard of Terry? I, I haven't oh. read any, but I yeah. have seen many, many books of his on yes. shelves. So Terry Brooks is a sci-fi writer, the Shannara Chronicles. Everything is fucked. Every, <laughs> every book is like, oh no, the princess has been killed. The murder has happened. And then the whole world is fundamentally based on the fact that we lost a war against demons. Like us, you and me, this timeline, mm-hmm. lost a war against demons that we didn't know we were fighting and whatever. But there's... Fuck, there's probably 30 of those books. And <laughs> I think I've read all of them. But there's one particular series, which is The Gypsy Morph, which is the last one. They occur first technically in the chronology, but they're last in the... And they're the ones that are set like now in the transition in that demon war. And basically in it, Terry Brooks establishes that actually the world exists because of like a, an act of great good. And if you then read all the books in that context, then every book is fundamentally hopeful. I think there are certainly examples of stories that have no hope or have no joy uh, or no concept of hope but because of who humans are i think it's very hard to not do that there's a book an australian book by an australian author that cannot remember the name of the author or of the book i know that i've read it It had a blue cover turned out they were twins yeah exactly (laughs) in it basically it's all told from the perspective of this person and there's this like rage monster that lives in the hills and is always coming down. And the main character is sentient and it's set in an Australia that you recognize and this journey occurs and everything's fine. In the last like 
five pages of the book, it's revealed that that monster is actually a human who has been in this post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland turned into a monster. And it's actually like the kangaroos that have become sentient. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's like the kangaroos who you've always thought were humans are actually not. Oh, the twist, the humans are bad. But that's still fundamentally hopeful. It's just like hope without humanity, which is like a thing. I think, you know, you look at Star Trek or anything like that. They're still fundamentally hopeful, fundamentally uh, rooted in, couldn't we do this? I'm struggling to think of an example of sci-fi that isn't rooted in hope. Alien, still horror, still everything's cooked. Rooted in the hope of what if we colonize space? What if we did this good thing? It's still that fundamental problem. We talk in generalization about how, you know, there couldn't be a Ben's thing of like, we take the problems of now and project them into the future, but there's still a hope that we could solve them. Um, And then there's sci-fi that's like far future, which is like just completely different problems. Um, There's a book by Alistair Reynolds called House of Sons, which is a very good book. Do do recommend it. Um, But basically in it, this character's trying to, it's like a detective novel kind of trying to figure out how this thing happened. And it's all like uh, across the way that we've figured out how to travel space in that is by living really long. Like okay, we just, like, so extended lifespans. Extended so lifespans. But we don't go fast. We just... Yeah, so it's sub-light. It just, we, we live long enough to see the end. And sometimes we sleep through it and stuff mm. like that. Basically, they're trying to solve this riddle of like, who killed this group of people? No, I won't spoil it. It's because it's a really good book and it's a really good twist. Okay. Really good ending. But House of Sons, it's like, it's still fundamentally hopeful, even though a lot of it's without hope. And I think, yeah, so that's probably, if you ask, why am I posy? Why am I like a good guy? Because like shit can go real bad. But I think that fundamentally... It's all going to be okay if we work together or, you know, alone against the great problem. See, that, that gives me a, that gives me hope as well, because I tend to I tend to burn out really quickly on stuff that is too dreary, stuff that is too heavy. Even if it turns up at the end, yeah. if the trip in getting there is too long, I will tap out because yeah. I have something and I'm, I'm much better at it than, than I was uh, when I was younger. But I will often like, internalize some of the kind of emotional content of stuff. Mm. So reading, for example, a, like a book where there is a sad scene and I have to put it down and go to work, I will feel like crap for the first half of that day yeah. because it's like that emotional ringer that you've put yourself yeah, yeah, through. Yeah. And so there will be situations where someone will recommend me something and they'll be like, oh, you know, it's this really interesting deconstruction of how a person can go bad. And I'm like, wait. I need you to tell me, don't spoil me, does it come good in the end? Because if I'm like, that's why I couldn't do Breaking Bad. Because Mm. in the third episode of Breaking Bad, I realized there is going to be nothing but bad things in this show for the next seven seasons. When you look at Game of Thrones, it's the same thing. It's bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Yeah, and I actually burnt out, I think it was mid-season two in Game of Thrones and just stopped for a while. Came back for the latest season. They won me back for about five episodes. Yeah. And at the end of that season, I got so angry that I started jumping up and down and yelling where I'm just like, you have, you got this goodwill yeah. back back to me. Yeah. I started to care and then literally you burnt it all up. Yeah. And yeah. I got so angry and I'm just like, I'm not gonna, I won't get fooled again. I'm not coming back. You can't, you can't trick me. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really interesting difference between like sci-fi and fantasy. A lot of fantasy is without hope. And that's why it's fantastical. Not because there's... I mean, this is a sweeping statement, but I'll fucking make it. Do what I want. (laughs) Do it. That's why fantasy is fantastical. Not because it has wizards and dragons, but because it is hopeless. So often the problem is so insurmountable and the fact that we could beat it doesn't make any sense. So that when we do, it doesn't ring true. Like it's always, ah, the wizard did the, the magic trick and suddenly we won. I still love a lot of fantasy, but it's it's... 
fundamentally i think broken broken in that way i think that's the it's, it's like that way. that bit at the end of sunshine where it's like we can't actually project this at a certain point mm. because at this point the math gets heavy enough that that everything just goes squibbly and yeah. we could just it could cease to exist we don't know yeah exactly and i think that's the give up is i don't know it's interesting and I, I think it's also important to fantasy it makes it interesting on the note of like absorbing books i think that's super true or absorbing content even i think it's super true i'm currently reading for the next episode of generalization interview with a vampire and twilight mm-hmm. and it is killing me <laughs> i'm just <laughs> like interview with a vampire is so ugh. it's just like so focused on aesthetics mm. and the catly voice is sort of whiny and i'm just like oh move on and then twilight is just a raft of problems and yeah i'm just like i'm struggling to enjoy anything off the back of that and particularly after finishing zelda which is so hopeful and so joyful while being so dark and so like rich with problem god i remember reading interview with the vampire when i think it was i think it was 15 and uh like i was handed it with a with a warning from my dad where he's like you know I saw on the news that some people are really into this. So just remember that and keep a little bit of distance as you read it. And I'm yeah, like, did, well. my, did my dad think I was going to be a vampire? I did have a goth phase, but it wasn't yeah, anything no, related no. to that. Yeah, uh, interesting. And so, but but when you read it, because Louis' voice is so, is so like introspective and just mm. like self-flagellating. Yeah. And then when you step into the second book in Vampire Lestat, yeah. and Lestat has a completely different voice. Yeah. And it's like like stepping up out of that fog and quite a, kind of dancing along the top. Yeah, which is It's great. such a change. Yeah. And you know, the thing is that I actually, I think Anne Rice is unfairly maligned. I know that she's, can't remember whether or not, can't remember if she's a racist. Can never remember if she's a racist. I'm going to go out on a limb and say yeah. yeah. Although I won't be able to bring something out. Because yeah, I think yeah. I've... Yeah, there's, I've, there I've is some uncool stuff in, in her history. Um, yeah. But I've read most of... Before... You know, I've read up to, I think, Memnock the Devil, which mm-hmm. is maybe the seventh or eighth book yeah. in that series. And I like them. And because her, she managed to bounce between voice so well. It's just that in isolation, Interview with a Vampire is such a drag. Yeah. That's my, that's my comment on it. <laughs> uh, tune in to the next episode of Generalization for more on that. All right, Alex. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? The first thing you'd probably want to do is Google at Solwat, S-O-L-W-A-T. I'm on nearly every platform, including some that I've forgotten as that. So yeah, that makes it easy to find me anywhere. If you want to find my podcast, which is good, you can look for generalization, spelt like generalization, but with the R and E flipped. So it's genreization, and we're at genreization on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're also on Medium. You can find our podcast nearly anywhere that you would like. We're even on Google Play, though, even though it took <laughs> me a long time to get on there. Find us on iTunes, your preferred podcasting platform, or Google Play, or omni.fm, which is where we host our stuff. Finally, if you want to listen to any rock music that I have made in the past, you can look up Cull, spelled C-U-L-L, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or on SoundCloud, where you can find our full album aloft streaming for free it's also on spotify if you want to give us like a fifth of a cent every five years i do solemnly swear that i will set my laptop up playing and then i will walk away on repeat so you, you will get at least a dollar and you can buy like you know almost a whole coke out of it. Oh, no, but keep, keep in mind we have to share that between four people so, all so right. four dollars uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right alex well thanks very much this cool. has been great no it's been great thank you very much
Thank you very much to Alex Watts for his time. As discussed at length in the interview, Alex is not drinking for the next year, so I felt, especially after all the nice things he said about how he felt about it, that it wouldn't be right to make him a signature cocktail. He had also, in our initial discussions, put forth as an inspiration his favorite cordial, which is Cotty's Fruit Cup. For anyone like me who didn't grow up in Australia, think Kool-Aid, but it's in little jugs that you get at the supermarket, and it's a liquid. Go figure. Kimiko found some at a local store, and I tried to make it up. Unfortunately, I used the measurement on the bottle, which is nine bits of water to one bit of cordial, which anyone in Australia knows is apparently way too weak. I guess? No, I follow directions. So this week, find yourself a glass of something with some orange and pineapple and lemon flavors, and enjoy it. recorded this week in Stanmore, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you'd like to directly support the show and you have a few dollars kicking around, you can go on over to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or even like $50. Or like $100. It's up to you. You get early access to the show, cursive tweets, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a nice five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a playlist with every song I've ever used on the show going back to episode one, including this one. It's Lost Season 1 by Camp Cope. They're an Australian band from Melbourne. Alex sent me their link, and I really like them. The playlist is updated every Wednesday when the episode goes live, so make sure to subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Bilal Shelby about awesome women in their life being a gateway into nerd culture. It's going to be emotional, y'all. Join me, won't you? And then I'll ask some basic questions, kind of. Oh, was that Philip? That's Philip. <laughs> Aww. No, no, don't worry about it. It's cute. It's cute. Aww. Hey, buddy. <gasps> there you are. You're that famous cat from the internet. I'll just let him say hello to you and then I'll put him in the. Aww, he's a big fella. He's a big fella. Aww, chill, dude. It's okay. It's alright. not always the keenest pickup cat. Mm. So you've got all these little silver flecks in your black hair. He's older. This is you, your cat in. Probably 10 or 7 years, 9 yeah. years.
See, Olive's got a couple of little white spots in his chest, like a couple, like three or four hairs in his yeah. chest. So he looks like like this shitty teenager who can't grow chest hair. Right. You know. And good one. I'll just take it out. That's cool. Oh, cool. Which is great. Um, yeah, I was going to say... Uh, completely lost my train of thought. Distracted by cats. <laughs> yeah, same. 